I'm really, really glad to be with you this morning. Like Chris and Tom said, I'm Derek Bukema, pastor of Orland Park Christian Reformed Church. I bring you greetings from your brothers and sisters at Orland Park CRC. I am really thankful that I get to be here with you this morning. I, I think this is the third time I've had the opportunity to preach here, and each time has been a great honor. And um, it, it's a great honor because of how much I respect and I'm grateful for your pastor. Um, I, it's, you know, so I, I won't belabor this because it's, it's never fun being publicly praised in front of people that know you. Um, and so I, I, uh, I won't talk about it for very long, but I am really grateful for Chris. It's important to be able to express gratitude in times like this. Um, so how long has City Reformed Church been in existence? 10 years? So I've been a pastor for nine, um, and so all the time that I've been in ministry, one of the places that I've looked for wisdom and insight and how to do it right um, comes from Chris Gansky and from City Reform Church. And I know that the Lord has powerfully used this congregation in my life, and so I am so thankful for each one of you uh, and I'm so thankful for the ministry of this congregation, and I'm thankful for your pastor and his family, and I'm grateful to be here with you this morning. Today we're going to be taking a look at John chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 1 through 29 of John chapter 5, and um, yeah, I'll, I'll read, this, read this now. I love this section of scripture. I love what Jesus is doing here. Let's remember as we hear this, this is God speaking. So John 5, 1 through 29. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It's the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you're well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered him, My father's working until now, and I'm working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. 
For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that he may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he's granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he's given him authority to execute judgment because he's the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow our heads together and pray. Heavenly Father, as I um, now preach these words, we pray what we have sung earlier in this service. We pray that you would speak. We pray that you would take each one of these words that you have inspired by the Holy Spirit through your servant John, and we pray that as I preach them, that you would work in power. We trust you, God. We recognize that, um, that these words that you have inspired in John chapter 5 are extraordinarily potent. They tell us about the life that's in ours in Christ Jesus and, and his identity and how he's able to save from judgment. And so we pray that you'd give us attentive minds and open ears and receptive hearts this morning to hear and receive what it is that you're saying. And we pray that we might believe in Christ Jesus and by believing experience the life that is in his name. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So a couple months ago, I had um, my first parent-teacher conferences with my daughter's preschool. So I didn't know that you had to have parent-teacher conferences for preschool, but it was a really big deal. And it was like 45 minutes where they were talking about the places where she had to grow. You know, she's not very good at throwing a ball, for example. She confuses her M's and her N's and nines and sixes. She's always switching around. And so, you know, I took copious notes about how to teach her because I realized I had failed at the nines and sixes and at the M's and the N's. And every day since, not every day, but at least every week, we've thrown a ball together so that she might pass the end of preschool. But they didn't want me to leave in despair. And so one of the things that they said was, but she is excellent at show and tell. She's truly excellent at show and tell. And that warmed my heart. I was very glad that she was so good at show and tell. And they went into why they thought that was such a good idea. They said, this is a really pedagogically effective tool to the children, to have them have an object, to, you know, this concrete reality, and then to be able to extrapolate about all of it. And I didn't realize how important show and tell was until that parent-teacher conference. And my daughter is great at it. So I just want you all to know that whatever other educational deficiencies might exist in the Buchama household, show and tell is not one of them. Now, I, it makes sense that it would be a, uh, an effective pedagogical tool. It incorporates a couple of different things. And as I read John chapter 5, one of the things that I realized in the context of hearing about such a pedagogical tool is that here, Jesus actually does the exact same thing 
For John 5, 1 through 29, Jesus is showing the people who he is. It's all about the identity of the Lord Jesus. So much of John is. He shows the people who he is through the miracle. And then the second half, he explains to the people who he is. He shows them and he tells them. And one of the things that's so fun about John chapter 5, 1 through 29 is that there's this one verse right in the middle that sort of unites the showing and the telling. And if we were to miss either what we saw or what we heard, there's this one editorial comment where John comes in under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and tells us what this is all about so that we're on the right page, so that we understand, so that we can believe, and so that we might live forever. And so let's work through the passage. Let's first talk about the showing. Let's second talk about the telling. And then we'll conclude by just taking a, a look at that, that one editorial comment from John, which explains what this is all about. So let's start with the show. So it begins with a man who is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate, a pool called Bethesda, has five roofed colonnades. Now, um, at this particular time, there was this belief that every day an angel would come and would stir the pool. And if you were the first person into the pool after the angel would stir it, you might be healed of whatever was ailing you. That was what was believed at this particular time. Um, D.A. Carson said that there's some archaeological evidence that this was fed by two streams, each coming in a different direction and flowing intermittently. And so usually there was one point each day where the water would begin to swirl as the water came in two different directions from two different streams. And it was a reddish sort of water that seemed to have some sort of mineral, potentially restorative processes. And so there was no doubt something beneficial and healing about being at this particular pool. But because of these healing properties and because there was the belief that this could grant healing, this is a pool that would attract all of those who were sick or uh, or lame, or, or, the, or anything else, any kind of ailment that you might imagine would gather around in the hopes that they might be the first in the pool after it began to swirl and receive their healing. And this particular man had been there for 38 years. He had been there for, his, uh, for 38 years. It's a, it's a long period of time, every day, showing up in the hopes of receiving healing. Each, each day, for 38 years, his life had been oriented around the hope of finding healing at this particular pool. Longer than Jesus Christ had been doing his ministry on earth. Jesus obviously uh, lived for 30 years, three years of ministry, 33 years. And so shorter than this man had been visiting the pool of Bethesda, but obviously much shorter than Jesus Christ, the God man had been alive and in existence. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. And so Jesus comes and he sees this man and he knows, he knows how much he wants to be healed. He knows because he is God, he knows that he has for 38 years been by this pool in the hopes of receiving healing. And so he asks him what might seem to us to be the most obvious question in the world. He looks at this man and he says, do you want to be healed? And you might think, well, of course, Jesus, of course he wants to be healed. Like for 38 years, every day he's been coming to the pool. Of course he wants to be healed. Why do you ask such obvious questions? But think about the, this reality. If the man is healed, every part of his life is going to change. His whole life's been oriented around one goal. And if you were to finally receive that thing and realize that maybe your life's not perfect, this could be a devastating sort of thing. Do you want to be healed? It can be fearful to change your life in the sort of way that comes when healing arrives. 
I was talking to a military chaplain a couple years back now, and he was, sorry, not military, it's been an exhausting week, a prison chaplain, a couple, uh, a couple weeks, uh, a couple years ago, and he was talking about how interesting the kind of ministry is in the prisons. He said that he ministers to these guys who have been uh, serving sentences, there's sometimes 10, 20, 30, maybe 38 years. And he talks about how their whole lives are structured around the hope that they'll one day be out of prison. And yet, once their sentence is done and the guys go away, he said, that's when I really need to start praying because so often it's unbearable to receive that thing that you've been hoping for and have it not solve all the things that exist within you. And so he said, I I pray that, that they don't show up again. Because your life changing around that much can sometimes be unbearable. And they come back in and I have them again. Do you want to be healed? Jesus asks. Do you want to be healed? Everything is going to change if you are healed. I think that sometimes when we hear Jesus ask obvious questions, it's important for us to not quickly pass by them. And to think through all the implications of what it is that he is asking. Do you want to be healed? If there is something in the course of your life, maybe it is a persistent sin that you are walking with or struggling with. Do you really want to be healed from that? I think sometimes when we come to the Lord Jesus, what we want is freedom from the consequences of certain actions. But the permission to continue doing that thing that has characterized us up to this point. Do we actually want to be healed? Because everything changes if and when you're healed. Do you want to be healed? Because Jesus, he does that. He grants the healing, and then he immediately illustrates the sort of healing that's fundamentally more important for this individual. And we need to pay attention. Okay, so here's what first happens. He heals the man. The man picks up his bed. He begins to walk. And, uh, and this is extraordinary. 38 years where he's lacked this ability to walk, and it's all gone when Jesus just says the words, get up and walk. Jesus is so powerful because of who he is that all he has to do is say, get up and walk, and disability runs away. And this man can walk for the first time in his life. His legs are strengthened. His his body functions again as it was created to. He's able to get up and walk for the first time in 38 years. That's how potent the voice of Jesus is All he has to do is speak. He has to speak something that's actually impossible for this man to do, and it becomes possible because disability runs away, and this man can now run. But one of the things that happens immediately in the the wake of all of that is what Jesus is encountering so often. The Jews find him, the Jewish religious leaders find him, and instead of rejoicing that this individual who has been hoping to receive healing for 38 years, instead of rejoicing that there has been a miraculous healing in their midst, they note that it's the Sabbath, and they say, hey, uh, you're not supposed to be picking up your bed, it's the Sabbath, man, how about you lay down again, and maybe you can start walking tomorrow. Not today, not today. Too much work by picking up that, and... Uh, and and so we'll, we'll give thanks to God tomorrow, but not today for this healing. This, again, is so often the way of things. Now, I'm sure that many of you can have stories about all of this. I've heard all sorts of stories about the way that uh, some of the elderly people in the congregation that I serve were made to try to keep the Lord's Day. 
My favorite restriction was one of the older members of the congregation, they were allowed to throw a ball on Sunday, but they couldn't throw it hard. So if they threw it, you know, that was fine. That was restful and recreation and restorative, but they threw it hard, that was breaking the Sabbath. And so then they would be punished, have to come in for the rest of the day. There are all sorts of ways that we, as individuals, there might be this good principle, right? Sabbath keeping was this good principle, it was this gift that God had given to his people so they might be able to rest. But in order to try to protect this good principle, the there had been, man, this whole layer of restrictions that had been put in place that had been choking the enjoyment of the celebration of a day of rest. And then what happened was, like, there was this frustration, you know, like, all right, you broke one of those restrictions, so we're not going to rejoice that you're healed. It's amazing how often we're, I, I don't know, it's amazing how often we miss the great thing that God is doing because we fixate on a far lesser technical issue. You know, we don't want to do something that's good because it breaks a rule of procedure. We don't want to celebrate because it, it disrupts something down here. When I was in seminary, there was a fellow student of mine who was asking a, a professor for help He's, he was asking what he should do. His mom had become a Christian that month. She had become a Christian through the uh, ministrations of a priest in Los Angeles. He had, uh, he had started talking with her. He had shared her, the gospel with her. She had just been baptized into a Roman Catholic church. She had asked uh, for her son, who is in a Reformed seminary, to come to church with her. His whole life he had been praying for his mom to be saved since he had heard the gospel when he was in high school. He was rejoicing that his mom now knew Jesus, and he asked for a little guidance from our professor. I was right next to him. He said, so, so what do I do? Because I, I know that there's mass. And so he said, I, I know that I, I, I don't think that I'm supposed to take the Eucharist when my mom does because I'm not Catholic and she is. So I'm wondering, do I just go up and ask the priest for a blessing? And, and my professor said, a blessing doesn't count in a false church. And I thought, oh my word. Can we just for a second appreciate the fact that his mom knows Jesus now? Can we just for a moment, before we talk about some like theological issues that might come up down the pike, can we just for a moment be glad that God has done a work of bringing this person to faith in his son? Can we, before we criticize, give thanks to God for the work that he's done? You know, it's, it's an amazing tendency that exists in our own hearts to miss the work of God because something that is far less important has been undermined. Why don't you pick up that mat? Why don't you walk sometime in the future? It's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to be walking. And then Jesus finds the man again. The man doesn't know it's Jesus who healed him. And Jesus says something important. Verse 14, see you're well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Ah, Jesus is showing us here that sin is more damaging than a lifelong inability to walk. The sickness, the disability that was healed after a life of inability is, is less serious 
than the consequences of sin. Sin is so very serious. And so Jesus looks at this man who has received that which he has hoped for for his life and says, hey, now that you are well, I just want for you to note that if you were to sin, that would be worse than the 38 years of disability that you just experienced. And so don't sin anymore. These are helpful healing words too. Healing words for us this morning. Those of us who might have many levels of ability or inability or disability, that for all of us who are here this morning, something that would be worse than any of that would be for us to sin. Jesus is a gracious Savior, and he comes back to this man, and he offers him a deeper healing than the ability to walk. He offers him the healing of righteousness. And this speaks to the sort of healing that can be yours or mine this morning when we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. The best kind of healing comes when we turn our back to sin and walk in the way of the Lord Jesus Christ, turning away from self to trust in Jesus and follow him. And this also shows us what Jesus expects from those that he brings healing to. It's not just a profession of faith and then a return to the way that things were before we sort of walked the aisle or or said a, 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 the sinner's prayer, is a life change. Jesus expects that our life would change because of the fact that we are following him. And he also expects that we would see what it is that he's announcing through this miracle. And actually, the Jewish religious leaders get it. They actually get it. Jesus says, my father is working until now and I am working, and I am working. Jesus, Jesus says that the Lord, God, is his father, his own father. It's what frustrates the Jewish religious leaders. You know, at this particular time, the people of Israel thought that Israel was the son of God. Jesus is personalizing in a way that is deeply offensive to the Jewish religious leaders. And so the fact that he heals and does work on the Sabbath and he connects it to the fact that the Father is doing work on the Sabbath demonstrates who he is. That's the show. And then he goes on to tell. And that's the second part. The first part is all sort of action. The second part is all discourse. Jesus is talking about what it is that he has done. He goes on to demonstrate his authority. He says that he receives authority from the Father. He says that he is the Son of God. And then he says that he has the ability to do something that is more deeper. That is more deeper. Sorry, again, it's been a tiring week. That's deeper and more important than healing the lame. Specifically, the thing that Jesus highlights throughout the rest of the passage is he's able to save from death. Let me just note all the places that he mentions it. Verse 21, as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Verse 24, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me as eternal life, he's passed from death to life. Verse 25, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear it will live. And then verse 28 and 29 says the exact same thing. Jesus repeats himself again. Jesus is not able to simply save from disability, Jesus is able to save from death. At his voice, not only does disability run away, at his voice, death itself dies. Death itself dies. 
One of the difficult aspects of being a minister is um, at any time having to do the funeral of someone within the congregation. And at Orland Park Christian Reformed Church, the first four years or so, there were about 15 funerals a year that I had to do. Over the course of the last five years, it's probably been more like 20 a year. So it's probably been about 150 funerals I've done in the nine years that um, I've served at Orland Park CRC. And each time you do a funeral, it feels so final. Because we go to the, we go to the cemetery and we stand by a plot of land that the family had purchased and we wait until the body is lowered into the ground. And then because I travel with the, uh, the mortician, I sit and wait with him while they start putting dirt so that there's just a, a grassy spot. And then I go home. And it feels so final. And it doesn't matter what I say at those times, it's done. But what Jesus is saying, as he's talking about his own authority, is he's saying, not only is my authority great enough that I can heal on the Sabbath, but my authority is so great that there will come a day that I go to that place where a loved one is buried and I say, get up and death itself is going to die, and that person will get up and walk and come out of the grave and live. And if they hear my voice, they'll go on to live life everlasting, a life that does not die. And that's because of who Jesus is. It's because Jesus died. I don't want to spoil the end of the book of John, but you've had 2,000 years to read it, so I have a problem spoiling the end of it. As Jesus continues his ministry, he's going to go to the cross, and then he is going to be buried in a grave, and it's going to seem to everybody who watched that this was the end. But on the third day, Jesus is going to get up and walk out of the grave, really, truly alive, demonstrating how useless... A tomb is when you try to use it to contain the Son of God. And demonstrating for all of us how useless our grave will be when Jesus just speaks the word, get up. Get up out of the grave. I wrote a poem about this that I'm actually going to share with you. And I understand if that makes you cringe inside, just hearing that I wrote a poem and that I'm going to share it with you right now. And I actually have never shared this with a church before, and please don't tell Oral Park CRC. I will get made fun of a lot for it. And uh, I figured you, you all, if you think it's bad, and you can, I think it's pretty bad, but I, I uh, you know, like, you can make fun of Chris, you know, for inviting a preacher that would share a poem that he wrote. <laughs> But I don't, I don't have to face you again for, you know, until I'm invited back to preach, which I might not be after sharing a poem that I wrote. I, uh, again, I'm not a writer. This doesn't even rhyme, okay? So I'm just, I've set it up this way to just ask for your patience with me as I share this with you. 
I wrote it five years ago. I'd been pastoring for a little over four years when I wrote it. And um, it meant a lot then. Okay. So this is the poem. I'm not very old, not yet 33. I don't know much, but I've buried 60 people. One was a child, one was 21, one took his life. I know what it is to hurt. I'm not very old, not yet 33. I've made a lot of mistakes. My wife is not one of them. I like that verse. (laughs) And here's the last one. I'm not very old, and I know what it is to be forgiven, to leave my burden on a tree, to bind it to a broken body, and to leave it in a useless tomb. So I wrote that five years ago because it's a weighty thing to have to bury so many. And it's a beautiful thing to know how little the grave has power for anyone who trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ. All he has to do is say the word. Get up. And you who trust in Jesus will live forever. Jesus is not able simply to save from disability. He's able to save from death and he's able to save from judgment. For 38 years, this man who would come to the pool thought that what he needed was healing from his disability, but what he needed was Jesus. He needed the one who could heal him and call him to turn from sin and bring him to life when he had died, and that's your need too, and it's my need too. What I need and what you need is Jesus. All right. All of this reveals who Jesus is. It shows us that at the beginning. It tells us that in the middle. And then the text right in the very, very center of it all gives us one editorial comment so that you and I can't miss it. One verse, verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. What John 5 illustrates is that Jesus is not simply a healer. He is God. That's why he's able to save from judgment. It's why he's able to save from death. It's why you have hope when you, if you, and when you have lost one that you love deeply who trusts in Jesus. It's why you have hope as you walk through your own life knowing that your death is not final. It's why we must trust Jesus because he can save from judgment. He can save from death. And it's why it's worth totally, radically reorienting our lives to follow him. Do you want to be healed? I do. I do. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We see that Jesus is God and we recognize that we need his healing. 
especially healing from sin and death. And so enable us to trust in him, Lord, and experience the sort of healing that he brings. We pray all of this in the powerful name of Jesus, our God. Amen.